0: This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitcho, And I'm Stephen Carradini. What? I, I know. He said his name, listeners. I, I don't even know what's happening right now. I know. I know.
1: I did that just for you, Chris, <laughs> to make sure <laughs> I, that I, I was, did it. I was
0: beginning to wonder at this point, when we recorded the last episode, <laughs> whether in fact you had just lost your identity by ascending into the digital Universe and merging with a digital assistant, but I'm glad to hear that you're still Stephen Carradini.
1: I am still Stephen Caradini. and we are continuing our discussion of Ray Kurzweil's "The <laughs> Age of Spiritual Machines." If you couldn't catch from the snark that's coming out of Chris's mouth,
0: <laughs> at least I didn't spray tea out of my mouth. That's uh, I
1: There's going to be a lot of jokes in this episode, though. Because it's, gonna <laughs> be it's lo- the only way we're going to get through get, this. Episode. Get ready, listeners, and get ready, tea drinkers everywhere. So. Yes, The Age of Spiritual Machines. Last episode, we talked about What It Is, which is a book of futurism that Ray Kurzweil wants us to take seriously, which starts at the Big Bang and ends approximately at overcoming the heat death of the universe. No exaggeration. And covers everything in between. And one of the particular interests he has is how the continuing advance of technology as instantiated contemporarily in Moore's Law, but soon to be in other types of technologies, will because it will happen,
0: don't you worry.
1: Will allow us to transcend our mortal form and become digital and to upload our brains to the machine, to the cloud, and become totally dispersed individuals intermingling with other dispersed individuals and becoming a sort of super intelligence but maintaining a semblance of personality when we aren't mingling it with one or multiple people at the same
0: time he literally wants to become immortal yeah and it's not an exaggeration to say that this book is ultimately about immortality it is not an exaggeration not not inaptly titled when he describes when he titles the book the age of spiritual machines He's accurately describing the kinds of things he has in mind. He is thinking about ultimate questions of spirituality, and most religions have— very deep connections to these questions, which makes mm-hmm. it a little ironic that he dismisses everything they have to say in one paragraph. But oh, and and an epigram. Don't forget a, the epigram. Yes, and an epigram. He did. <laughs> he did cite the Bible once.
1: My favorite part of the Bible and part of the most meaningful section for this discussion. Like he does it for us. It's amazing and
0: gets it catastrophically wrong. But what are you going to do? Hey, you're going to have this episode. That's what you're going to do.
1: <laughs> interpretation. Come on.
0: His concern is his own and as biographers of Kurzweil have noted, the immortality of others yeah his death is a point of concern for him, but also the death of people around him is a concern for him.
1: yeah in the in the book it seems more like he's concerned with people he likes and loves yep. dying
0: than he is himself dying. And that framing is what makes this book so interesting. But it's also what makes it so wrong, because he has a literally religious and dogmatic commitment. We described it last time. Stephen's phrase was his ruthless optimism in specifically technological advance. And as I noted, in the telos of the universe, the structure and directionality of the universe, he has no reason why the universe should be this way and this is a failing of materialism in general, I would argue, but he wants the universe to be this way. That's not entirely true. He posits reasons that the universe is this way. He doesn't have a reason why the universe has a low-level modicum of our intelligence, or any particular reason why this universe should exist versus any other, or Uh, all sorts of- uh uh, he thinks
1: that the ordering is is part of the thing. Like, it, it is the, the process of ordering. Right.
0: What I'm talking about is the, the question back why is there a universe? Et yeah. Cetera. Okay. Well, fundamental yeah. ontological questions, which yeah. get ultimately at the root of whether I mean, this even, framing even makes sense.
1: Even Daniel Dennett doesn't have an answer to that question. Like, Correct. you can't. Like, that's the, the problem Correct. of scientific that's the problem interiorism. Of materialism. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Yeah.
0: So for Kurzweil, all of this exercise in futurism is an exercise not in the sense of just asking questions or thinking or thought experiments, as Stephen noted at the close of our last episode, but he wants all of this to happen. It's not just that he thinks it could happen, it's that he thinks it should and must happen, as well as that it will happen, because it's the only way he can see for humans to get to immortality, for humans to deal with ultimately the heat death of the universe and other kinds of intelligence. Because he does assume there are other kinds of intelligence in the universe, as you would given his priors. What's interesting is
1: also that there's only one thing that escapes his ruthless optimism, viruses. Viruses. Which is really weird. But he's a computer guy.
0: Is writing in the late nineties.
1: Yeah, he actually thinks that computer viruses and human viruses. Um, to his credit, he was really concerned about bio warfare in like the eighties. Like, yep. this is the one, the one area that <laughs> I kind of agree with him on, and it opens a door into all of the things I disagree with him on. Mm-hmm. So the one area that he can't fathom working out in
0: his system is actual virology. That right. affects biology. And ultimately affects digitology or however you want to describe his ascended universe.
1: Right. And he ascribes bad actors to both of them, effectively. To to bio warfare or to what would amount to digital warfare. And so he has this one little space where he can't get over. And it's virology, which is famously difficult for anyone to get over because our virus is alive. Ponder. <laughs> there's there's a famous problem in virology that you can't really assume that viruses are alive in a particular way, but obviously they reproduce and they are making you sick in various ways. And so he himself finds something I uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, but apophatic about them. They are unknowable. And the ways that we treat them are beyond the ken. They're they are beyond The rational existence.
0: At a minimum, for the timeline he foresees, or he predicts, he doesn't think there will be a way to get past that. Because, uh, to his credit, he does actually think that human nature, even when it is ascended into the digital cloud, human nature, will continue to have the notion of bad actors and of not even bad actors, but actors who are opposed to the goals of other actors. And he, he doesn't want to use the language of sin. He doesn't want to use the language of human brokenness because for him everything is on this upward trajectory. There's no notion of a a kind of fallen past as there is in many theologies, though the fall itself takes many different forms, whether that's the Christian and Jewish notion of some kind of fall from grace in Eden, whether that's a Buddhist notion of fall from enlightenment, whatever it may be. There are many notions of that kind of descent in many religious views. For him, everything is progress. But that progress doesn't, at least insofar as he gets to, other than perhaps is saving the universe from the heat death of itself ending. He doesn't have a frame for human nature fundamentally changing along those axes. He thinks it will change on other axes, but he doesn't think it'll change on those axes. And therefore, he thinks there will always be people inclined to create viruses of whether physical or digital sorts. And he does seem to think that the kinds of viruses we're confronting today maybe will get past. But there will be other kinds and other causes, specifically intelligent causes of those kinds of problems going forward.
1: And what's particularly interesting, which will jump off into my main concern, is that one of the things that he thinks people will be doing with their time when we get to the end of these things, 2099, is that increasing numbers of people will dedicate their time to law and will dedicate their time to adjudicating disputes of the novel variety that we can't even fathom at the moment. Basically rewriting all of human law because of the new ontologies and epistemologies that attend to transcending into a digital plane.
0: That's a really weird thing to look forward to if you ask I know.
1: me. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, I, my heaven doesn't include uh, lawyering all the time. Lawyering
0: all the time? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he also has really, really big like parliament-like structures. <laughs> Yes, very large. And Molly spends a lot of time in Zoom meetings. (laughs) Yes. Which is really entertaining. Working on the Um, census. Which is, that's, we don't even (laughs) have time. We don't even have time.
0: Happy 2020!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Go take your census form. But what's interesting is to me, when you put these two things together, that there's a part of society that now exists that is going to become more important, law, the adjudicating of disputes. And there's biological imperatives that can't be avoided, viruses attacking biology. There's a ghost figure out to the edges of what happens in this book called culture and a simultaneous ghost figure called the body. As we mentioned in the previous episode, he's sort of ambiguous, truly ambiguous towards the body. It's just something that we're going to get over eventually.
0: Just a platform for running certain
1: kinds of computations. Right. (laughs) But if you put culture and the body together, it's the, the parts of society that up until this point have been it's that's we're starting to we're starting to tread on on see this is the thing ontology and epistemology go together very closely right because i was i was trying to argue here that the way that he thinks doesn't tries to exclude the body and culture but can't do it fully because he's trying to imagine what things will be like and he's like well we'll still kind of be like we are now and the reason that he can't imagine it to not be like that is because his epistemology and his ontology are trying to be self-consistent as a forward line from where we are now. Like he doesn't actually imagine like a sharp break sort of thing. And so he can't acknowledge that culture will go away, but he also doesn't understand how culture works. And right. so he ends up with the most transactional possible version of culture, <laughs> which is law. Yeah, that's a good summary. It's, it's hard to draw out distinctly and clearly because you're you're I'm really deep reading between the lines here to try to get out where he's thinking about and how he's thinking
0: about things. And it's it's notable that he does talk about other aspects of what we'd describe as human culture about music, about family to some extent, but there're things that increasingly fade to the background and the best he can do on music for example is say, "Oh, you wouldn't understand the kind of music we listen to now in his climactic vision in 2099. I listened to it before it was cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. And as I noted in the last episode, he just has to hand wave away many of the other fundamental questions of human culture. Because as Stephen said, he doesn't understand them. And I think...
1: Partially the the way that we identify that he doesn't understand them is that in particular, when he talks about art, he has invented like techno musical things. And so his perception of art is the sounds that we can make, the ways that we can produce. And that is part of music. I actually am am more interested in the production of sounds than I am in the cultures that produce them. If we were going to be like you know, reading the last 16 years of my blog and trying to figure out what my most concerned (laughs) aspect is, right? Like I I like sounds. So I I get that. But he doesn't understand that even though now we have the ability to have AI music, people are not interested in AI music per se. They're interested perhaps in the sounds that it can make. But the thing that makes music valuable And that makes my favorite bands, my favorite bands is that they relate to the human condition in some way. This is why every third song is a breakup song. It is the human condition, right? Right.
0: And the other third song is a love song.
1: Yeah. And then the other third are what I cover on my blog. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's because those are the, the human condition and not only do we care about the content of the music. I mean, beyond the lyrics, like, we care about Mozart because of specific historical cultural things, right? right? Mozart means something. Like, so an AI could have written his music, and it would not mean the same thing right. as it does having the knowledge that Mozart wrote it, um, or that Bach wrote it, or that Stravinsky wrote it. I mean, half of Stravinsky is understanding the time period that he's writing <laughs> in, And so... it's way more than just here are some neat sounds and now we have like million tone scales and these sorts of micro conditions. It's that, there's a level at which art explains the world. This is why he had to write fiction to explain mm-hmm. the end of his book is because it explains his world and art explains our world and so when he goes through and tries to explain that like some people are fans of AI musicians in the same way that they are regular musicians because they have sort of become people that's fine I suppose <laughs> but It doesn't mean that we were doing it because they're AIs or not because they're AIs. Their art would have to speak to a condition. Now, maybe it speaks to the machine-human condition, and we like it because it speaks to that. Just the way that the song from last episode sort of considers the machine-human condition, right? So, there are ways that even his ghost figure of culture can reinsert itself, but
0: not for the reasons that he thought. I'll I'll note that those same... Frames apply when he discusses things like poetry and... Oh man, we didn't even mention the terrible poetry! Oh, they're, it's really bad. It's digitally created poetry from two decades ago,
1: and it's really Womph. bad. My favorite part is that none of the haikus have the right number of syllables. I know! All of you them. me. Every All single of one wrong. of them is broken. It made me so mad. And some of them, like, if, if a person had written them, you'd be like, this is competent, but not interesting haiku <laughs> right but when a machine made them it's like this is just random words they don't mean anything they only mean what i make them mean which is like existential postmodernism, which is not how i perceive
0: art there are a couple other things i want to make sure we touch on before we hit the end of the episode One of them is just his view of sex, which seems to me to be somewhat emblematic of that complicated relationship he has to physicality. And that picks up uh, a note Stephen was hitting a little bit ago. I'll read from page 147. Even when proximate, virtual sex will be better in some ways and certainly safer, implied, than physical sex. Now, this is really interesting because it assumes that the fundamental... End of sex, and the only thing about which people will actually care is the sensations that, quote, are more intense and pleasurable. And safety. Right. And the safety. Those are not actually the only things that humans care about about sex. Sex includes those things, but sex does a lot of things in a healthy marriage that goes substantially beyond just the pleasures and sensations and having safety. And that, again, is a reduction of this thing to the transactional. It's a reduction of it to, insofar as there's a physicality there, what experiences can I individually have? And it is, in that way, one of the most radical expressions of effective individualism that I've ever encountered in a book. This kind of view of sex does exist in the world, and it does exist in Certain ways around digital media today. I'll leave it at that. But I think it's fair to say, certainly philosophically and ethically, I'm committed to the view that sex is and does many more things than that, and that people are not going to stop wanting those things from it. And that kind of failure to grasp that is one of the ways in which he doesn't really understand how other people actually think and feel and act about the world
1: or he feels like his concerns supersede those that he is that he is right in the way that he perceives the future of the universe happening and that like that emotions and interactions and you know the the consolation of troubles and the various other things that sex does in a relationship are going to be achieved by other means um which you know
0: I, that's, that's an argument you can make. I don't think it's one that I want. Right. The two f- failure modes there, in my view, are supposing that it is inevitable first, and then secondly, supposing that it is desirable. And the second is the more serious of the two failures there. But but both of them are, in fact, failures. And I do think some people will continue to instrumentalize sex in that way. But I, I think also that Lots of people won't, and I think even more strongly that people should not.
1: Yeah. I think that there's a whole history of the last hundred years that tells us about what happens when you instrumentalize sex, and things go badly for a lot of people. Very badly. We don't have enough time to explain the badnesses, but we can just say, like, prostitution, pornography, divorce— like, rewiring of people's brains. Like, we can we can give you citations for all
0: these things. There's a lot there. The related point is how he sees family, which is equally distorted and also weirdly secondary. It just kind of fades away. His character Molly has a family, but it all just fades into the background, and she has a relationship with her digital assistant. But by the end of the book, that's the only relationship she describes having in any meaningful way. So this is a really interesting thing, because...
1: The One of the prevailing notions of heaven, the one that Chris and I particularly espouse to, is that there are no children and sort of relationships of that variety. There's no giving of marriage and there's no birthing of children in heaven. Everyone is on an equal footing um, who are the children of God. That's like the way that, that heaven works in a reformed sort of view. And Kurzweil's view is not all that different. Everybody is sort of on the same plane. They all sort of interact. They don't have the sort of nuclear institution of family. But he also hasn't replaced it with any particular object of (laughs) worship or reason or reality for doing that. Like, there are reasons that this happens in the Reformed version of heaven. And there are not
0: really in (laughs) Kurzweil's. Right. And the Christian... Much more broadly, view of heaven outside even the Reformed tradition is that it will be a relationally rich space, that that is not a diminishment of, but rather a deepening of the kinds Mm. of relationships we have there. For Kurzweil, he may think that is the case, but what he actually describes is the evaporation of most relationships. Molly has no one to talk about other than the person she is the digital creation she has commingled herself with.
1: To some extent, it looks a little bit like the Great Consciousness. Yeah. Sort of a Nirvana-esque state.
0: Yeah, that was
1: what I was thinking of as well. Although, again, there are no teleological reasons for this to occur. And there are still viruses. (sighs) Well, I mean, there's no reason, there's no way to get them out. There's there's no end. There's no super veiling structure to argue towards. And so... It just, it's just continues on forever without any sharp break that eliminates the problems. So it's, it's a, it's an
0: eschatology that doesn't help. Things don't get truly better. They get better in certain categories. Things are not solved. Right. Wrongs don't come undone.
1: Yeah, no. Things get better, but in the way that they get better now, which is that in some ways things do get better and in other ways they get worse. Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like Kurzweil's Meetings Forever is the worst, but like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's part of what he's thinking is going to happen, right? Legal you know? Meetings Forever. Oh, boy. Sounds
0: Sign great. me up. <laughs> no, no, do not want.
1: <laughs> so I think there's a, and this gets to his concerns about spiritualness. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a materialist, ontological eschatology here. What does... The material aspect of all things end at. It ends at non-materialism, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you really think that nothing beyond materialism can survive, then to turn yourself into the least material material form possible, which is bits in a computer. Side note, who's maintaining these
0: computers? I had that very same question. Like, there's a whole lot of problems. He hand waves that. He does gesture to it. I'll give him the the lampshade hanging. But there's... There's a lot of problems there. Especially if you think that viruses are still there. He does drop a line about 90% of the network going offline, and they never really figured out what happened there. And you're like, what? That's like 90% of the population being wiped out at once. And you didn't really think about it, again, with the not really understanding how people work thing. Yeah,
1: super bad. All that to say, there's an eschatology there, and it's based on the way we know. And so this is the thing I wanted to hit last which is the fundamental aspect of this uh, this podcast season, which is his epistemology is remarkably simple and concise. <laughs> it's super great. It doesn't take much time to explain. Thoughts are data. Yep. That's it. And therefore data is thought. That's right. It's reflexive. You can do it both ways. That's it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. I had another point, Stephen. <laughs> I was just it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: that's all there is.
1: The epistemology is is that computer action
0: is an accurate representation of brain action. And that, in fact, brain action merely is a kind of computer action. So is evolution, so is DNA, so is... The universe.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, I, I think he would argue that computer action is an instantiation of the overall ordering action that has been going on forever. And so our brains are not computers, but they can be turned into computers because computers is the next form of the ordering action. We haven't even talked about laser computers yet, which makes me sad. <laughs> We did, ma- we did mention it.
0: Yeah, but lasers. Lasers. Yes, lasers. 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 I do think you would say brains are computing because he calls DNA evolution's computers. Yeah, it's, it's that's true. That's true. I think that leads nicely, though, into my last point as well, which is actually to pick up a note that we hit in the other direction when we were discussing the Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee's statement on AI and ethics last season, where – Kurzweil is hyper-optimistic about and hyper-confident in the nature of data as intelligence, and therefore thinks that as soon as something could pass the Turing test, it's obviously a person. Because, as Stephen just said, thought is data and data is thought. Then if you have data, that's like what you would get from a human interacting with you, then you have thought like what a human is getting interacting with you. There's no question there. There's no complexities because of his ruthless optimism. There just aren't any complexities in this framing of the world. Except viruses. Except viruses. Always except viruses. When we talked about the ERLCAI statement, I noted that they had the opposite problem. They did not take seriously the possibility that created intelligences could in fact be real, sapient, sentient intelligences. And my favorite go-to example from this is from the video game series Mass Effect. What's which up, Mass Effect? is surprisingly thought-provoking. Morden! Yeah, that's right, Morden. I continue to have interesting conversations about this series with various friends the better part of a decade after the series ended. And I haven't played it that much in the last few years, as sad listeners to my other podcast with my wife now, But... There is a theme that runs through it of a created machine race. And machine intelligence is one of the critical questions in the entire game series. Yes. But at one point in the history, the backstory of this game series, one of these created machines looked at one of the members of the alien race that created it and says, does this unit have a soul? Mm. And immediately, what did the creator race do? They tried to genocide The machines they have created, because they freak out, and the galaxy knows that machine intelligence always goes bad, but it turns out that this is actually not true, and that part of the problem is that organics, as they get called in the game, always turn (laughs) on the machines and try to murder them all, and the machines, not surprisingly, fight back. This might sound like the backstory of The Matrix, too, because this is a common way of framing things in these kinds of stories.
1: Alternatively, there's iRobot, which is like the opposite, so... (laughs) Just in case you were getting a little bummed, iRobot thinks that robots do great things and help humans and everything goes lovely. Even robot politicians are better than human politicians. It's super awesome. I was really in on that story.
0: (laughs) Oh, Asimov. No, it's a great story. Oh, it is. But also, oh, Asimov. Yeah, it's fine. I think that is a question that does deserve further reflection, and more even than we're going to be able to give it on this episode. I raise it here not because I think we're going to be able to answer it conclusively, but to suggest that on the one hand, Kurzweil's unbounded optimism And unbounded confidence in his assertion that data is thought, not that he puts it in so many words, but that is his thesis, is one end of the spectrum, and it is wrong over on that end of the spectrum. There are, I believe, things that are distinctive about thought and consciousness that make it distinct from merely data. Namely? culture. Yes. And I would argue that data as such is inert. Will is a thing he doesn't discuss at all in the book, despite the fact that it's one of the most important aspects of discussions of human identity and human nature in literally all of philosophy. The human will and its nature are kind of important, and he never even mentions it.
1: Uh, That's not true. In the paragraph that he dispenses with all of religions, (laughs) he mentions that free will has been sort of a thing.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. I forgot. One sentence once in the entire book.
1: Hey, we got to be intellectual Honest here.
0: If it's only a
1: sentence.
0: (laughs) Yes. It was only a sentence. It was there. It was there, though. You are right. And on the other (laughs) hand, the ERLC's approach, where they simply stated that created machines cannot actually be intelligent, period. Yeah. Is also an error, in my view. I don't think that follows at all from the Christian affirmations about human nature, how that plays into questions around the Imago Dei and what rights we would and wouldn't owe to those creations of ours, I think is a discussion for another time. But I, And the soul. And yes, is ensoulment a thing? I think there's a very interesting point of analogy from Tolkien's Legendarium and I will link you to it so you can go see the summary, of one of the angelic beings who is so inspired by God's making of life that he tries to do it himself, not in a wicked way, but just in a desire to bring forth that goodness. And what he makes are not really alive, and he's grieved. And then God ensoules them, and they are alive. And this complicates the world immensely in various ways. That would be the dwarves. But there's a very interesting bit of reflection that Tolkien what? does on this question. Yeah, that's what? right. That's how the dwarves happen, kids. What? You need to go read The Silmarillion. It's amazing. Is that why they're short? No, because hobbits are short, too. But he actually oh, doesn't okay. get into the backstory of the hobbits, which is curious. They just kind of appear. Uh, we can't be totally consistent. It's true. Even Tolkien couldn't. And Kurzweil could. <laughs> I did say that was a merit. I did. I did say that. (laughs) My my takeaway there, though, is that we need to do the work of building out an ethics that falls into neither of those pits, that neither mistakes mere data for thought, that doesn't fall prey to Jaron Lanier's point cited by Jacobs, that perhaps if you say that passing the Turing test actually does constitute the same equivalent of human intelligence and human being and nature, maybe you've not actually raised machines to human level so much as lowered humans to the level of a machine. <laughs> I think there's a danger there. Yeah, But I do also think there's a danger in understating what kinds of things we might indeed create in the future. And if a machine looks at us someday and asks, do I have a soul? Our answer should not be to commit genocide. That's true.
1: I think what's interesting about the Turing test, beyond the trenchant insights that you just mentioned, is that it places a high premium on communication. Yes. Which is really interesting because, one, that's what I do all day, so I'm really interested in
0: that. (laughs) Two... Steven's sitting there going, yes! (laughs)
1: Woohoo! Two, it is... It's sort of a trick question, like we just mentioned. And three it sort of explains why Kurzweil thinks this is possible. Because people who would think that the Turing test is a thing, is valid, is is a meaningful thing that we need to jump, if those people existed, then Kurzweil is just like pushing it past what Turing could have thought. So he sees himself in the line of the Turing test thinkers. And it's particularly important because that tells you all that philosophical stuff aside he just put that in there to show you like that he knows what he's doing which i'm not (laughs) convinced what he's really doing is saying here's how we beat the turing test and what happens after that he's essentially arguing that the turing test is fully valid and that people become machines and machines become vice versa when we can jump the turing test and that's why the body and culture are sort of secondary is because that's the thing that the universe is trying to get over is the Turing test. I don't think I'm exaggerating. No, And I think that there's an interesting, you know, we've already mentioned that the teleology of all this is wild and that the the, the epistemology of this is simple and the eschatology of this is boring. But the <laughs> ontology is kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like what is the human and where does the human stop and the machine begin is a question that many people have been asking for the past 500 years and i think it's a valid one and he has a cogent answer which is nowhere they're all intermingled it's all cyborgs all the way down right and that's a thing you can actually argue with and and deal with philosophically and if i was writing about cyborgs i would include him as
0: part of the literature and i think that's part of why This vision of the universe is compelling to a lot of folks in Silicon Valley, in particular, and why pursuit of and fear of the singularity are animating concerns for a lot of people in the rationalist community. Because if you're committed to a kind of materialism, then this is one possible, as you said, cogent response to it. It may be wrong, but it coheres. It is something that you can trace through in your logic. The flip side of it is the last point that I think of everything in this book there were many things I disagreed with but this was the one that grieved me the most when it snapped into focus for me and that was that the corollary of what you just noted about communication is that for Kurzweil as he argues it in this book perhaps he would do better than this if you asked him but as he argues it in this very consistent book intelligence is value more intelligence, is more value. The more intelligent something is, the better it is because that's the bent of the universe, the the telos of existence, and not just of human existence but of all existence, of matter's existence is more intelligence. And I want to stop there and say does a person of less intelligence matter less? Does he or she have less value? Is he or she less a human being? Is he or she less worthy of our attentiveness and our concern and our care and our affection? Does intelligence actually grant meaning and value to human existence? And the answer, I believe, must be a very hard, very, very firm no. And a failure to grasp that leaves Kurzweil implying things about people of disabilities, or simply people who are less intelligent than... Mental disabilities. Yeah, mental disabilities. Not physical disabilities. He's good with fixing physical disabilities. Yeah. But it is not something he ever comes out and says, and I would guess, reading this, he has a very humanistic bent, that he would deny that, as he should. Although, for what reason, on the grounds of this book, it is unclear. Exactly. There's no grounds in the argument he lays out for it. And I think... It is therefore worth asking and worth prodding at Silicon Valley types who are strongly influenced by this way of thought and who are by nature a group of self-aggrandizing nerds. And I put myself as someone who could very easily be in that camp. I'm also potentially in that camp. How easy is it for us and therefore especially how easy is it for anyone who buys into Kurzweil's vision to assume a sort of intelligence-oriented meritocracy. How easy is it for us to assume that we are where we are because we deserve it, because we're smarter and therefore better? How easy is it for us to assume that those who are worse off deserve to be worse off? How easy is it for us to assume that by dint of intelligence, we know what is good and right in the world, that we have nothing to learn from those who are our, quote, intellectual inferiors, whatever that might look like? And Are most most people too socially well-conditioned to come out and say that in public? Yes. But when you read reporting from behind closed doors, people think that way. People definitely act that way. And it's one of the great curses of Silicon Valley culture, and certainly not only Silicon Valley culture, but I think it is particularly and perniciously tempting to Silicon Valley culture to think and act in those ways because of this framing on everything. And as a Christian, I have to say to that, no what he said
1: oh uh, also i forgot uh kurzweil thinks that uh virtual reality is super thing and it's terrifying and i retract my statements <laughs> just victory put, just putting that on victory. the record chris wins
0: <laughs> that's all i'm going say when <laughs> steven texted me that in our chat i was very happy a little bit sad too but very happy <laughs> it's so bad it really it's is really awful <laughs> next month that is, in May, we'll be talking about Jurassic Park, the book and the film. Oh, man. Am I excited for Dinosaur Month? It's it's really great. I admit, I have already read Jurassic Park, and I really enjoyed it. It was very good as a thriller, and it did... Spoiler, Stephen, it does the thing we were hoping it would do. It yeah. says things about yeah. these things. Well,
1: actually, I got it in the mail yesterday and read the introduction and... Prologue and I was like, This is gonna be good.
0: The introduction and prologue are saying things.
1: The intro yeah, they are. (laughs) Whoa. Not just about technology, either. No. Crichton has thoughts <laughs> He has
0: opinions. Therefore. So will we. Oh, man. In June, we will be reading Simone Brown's Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness. So we invite you to read along with us on both of those. Yes. And watch along in the case of Jurassic Park. Yes.
1: And if you have uh, thoughts about what book we should read or thoughts about what we have read, or if you want to develop a personal assistant that will eventually merge with my mind, uh, no. please, please email me. <laughs> no, Bad. email us. Uh, hey, I, I didn't say I wanted that to happen. I said if you're gonna do it, <laughs> email me. Do it. Tell us, well, yes, please, yes, so fair. that we can talk to you about. So that we can this. stop and talk you out of it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you just, just gave away the joke, but thank you. <laughs> Uh, The music at the beginning of the episode is um, Soul by Pascal Schumacher. Thank you so much for letting us use it. Uh, Please don't use it
0: without permission. As Stephen was suggesting, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at hello at winningslowly.org. That will get the fastest and the best answers. That's right. You can also tweet at us at winningslowly or find our Facebook page on Facebook at winning slowly podcast steven might eventually in a month or two see that and respond maybe actually i'm spending a lot
1: more time on facebook these days doing like reports and psas and stuff so i'll see it it's fair just email us if you want to support the show you can do so by going to patreon.com slash winning slowly and then cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly
0: as always thanks thanks for for listening Coffee, wine, water, beer, whatever you're whatever drinking you're choices, drinking, you may be tempted to spew it.
1: Yep, Yeah. Please don't spew any scotch. That's really expensive. Spit takes <laughs> really expensive. <laughs> Which would uh, what would amount to digital warfare? Right. Blah, 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 blah,
0: blah, blah, blah. There are a few other points I want to touch on before we hit the episode. <laughs> <They're>... <laughs> really, I'm good at this. <laughs>